So on this uh, Sunday, our next to last Sunday to be together, I thought I would say something about our history and what we've been doing here together. And then next week, I'll say something about a, a blessing for our future. But this week, I want to give kind of a retrospective on what's been our core theme. And for me, that has been genuine confidence in Jesus. I don't know how many times over the years I tried to get you to just think Jesus is smart. He's not just a source of blood. He's stunningly brilliant and absolutely knows what he's talking about. So genuine confidence in Jesus and his gospel, his gospel of the kingdom as the basis for both discipleship and ministry. And then a response to that that's childlike, joyful apprenticeship to him in the power of the spirit and seeing that as the path to abundant life. That obedience is abundance. That is to say, hearing Jesus, saying, I trust you, and I'm going to give myself to that kind of life, that is the path to abundance. Obedience is not the path to a shriveled up little religious life. It's actually the path to abundance. So this morning, before we get into uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, I want to say something about um, the imagination and worldview um, from which such a prayer would come and, and how this worldview is commended to us to shape our life and to shape our prayer and to sort of pull us towards this imagination. Well, when I say the word worldview, that I get that that can sound a little elitist. And kind of unless you have a, an elite uh, kind of liberal arts education or you studied philosophy or theology or something, you probably don't use the word worldview very often in common language, Right. And I just kind of have a feeling if you studied accounting or engineering or something, you maybe didn't think much about worldview. But everybody has one. We're just not always conscious of it. And being conscious of the kind of tracks that play in our deep subconscious, the kind of things that feed our imagination, whether we're consciously thinking about them or not, are very important. And so I want to suggest to you from this short passage from Acts 17, which is a wonderful worldview to help us think about um, the kind of heart from which the kind of prayer that we just read would come. So you remember Acts 17 is Paul in Athens, and he says to this crowd, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, when that is someone's fundamental worldview, it just changes everything. But when we think that God is very far away or we conceive of him as this sort of cosmic, unblinking stare that's just kind of waiting to find out what people are doing wrong so he can slap them, I just want to suggest to you that that actually comes from a worldview, one of the unfortunate laws of unintended consequences from the Enlightenment through the Industrial Revolution, through our technological revolution, is humanity is just more and more and more wanted to ground things and center things and, and make them like sort of like immovable, right? Like even Bluetooth doesn't work without a, a kind of concreteness that's attached to it. Airplanes don't fly without a, you know, being able to ground them in a certain reality. And for four or 500 years, as we've tried to stabilize God, we've depersonalized him and we've made him into a set of doctrines or into something that's owned by religions, when in fact God is person. And unlike the wings on an airplane, he's deeply flexible. If not, 
what could prayer possibly mean? God, we're not a person who actually listened to you and responded. What, what could prayer mean? What could any of this mean? What could discipleship to him, what could apprenticeship to him possibly mean? So Paul and Jesus and Jesus' first friends, they had a very personalized view of the world. Now, that personalized view of the world doesn't discard chemistry. It doesn't discard cosmology. It doesn't discard physics. It doesn't do any of that. It just simply says that whatever that is and that we can make stable, and I, for one who flies all the time, am grateful that airplanes are stable. So for all that we've done in this, you know, sort of post-enlightenment period to try to stabilize the world, all good and fine, as long as you just realize that the transcendent stabilizing factor is this deeply personal God, who Paul says does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, Paul says, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, and he marked out the boundaries of their lands. Now, it's that sort of imagination that's made me say to you many, many times over the last nine or ten years that this is our Father's world, and humanity remains his project. Humanity is not a human project. Humanity began when God said, let there be light, and then created Adam from the dust of the earth, and from that one man created everything else. This is God's project. And in that, we can be at peace. Now, when I say that, sometimes people wonder, well, shouldn't we be concerned about the systemic injustices in the world? Well, yes, of course we should. Shouldn't we be concerned about even the sort of personal injustices in the world? Well, yes, of course we should. But again, we're concerned about it under a larger rubric, under a larger transcendent idea that says this is all God's project and we're simply cooperating with him and that it's going to reach the destination that he intended. So God did this, as I say, he made humanity, sorted it all out so that they could seek him. And now we get to prayer and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So again, I don't know how many times you heard me say, just because it's, it's a fun thing to pick on, that we do not live in and have our being in election cycles. At least I refuse to. I don't live and move and have my being in whatever party seems to be ruling. And though I care about the stock market, I don't live and move and have my being in the stock market. My retirement plan does, but I don't, right? I mean, I, so it's, it's important. I get it. In fact, I have a donor right now just about to make a really large gift, but there's a certain stock that has to get to a certain amount before he's going to do it. And I told him for the first time in my life, I am reading stock quotes. I've been just sort of watching, you know, to see this stock to get to a certain number, and then I can call him and say, all right, let's roll. So my portfolio lives and moves and has its being in some larger portfolio, but I don't, and I suggest you don't as well. So that's the sort of vision, the worldview, the inspiration that animated Jesus's prayer. And then, of course, he gives it to his disciples to pray, saying, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven. And this alerts us to that when we pray and when we do our discipleship, we're doing it to a particular person. We're not doing it to a religion. 
certainly not to a denomination or to a certain church. We're addressing somebody, our Father, the God who made the world and everything that's in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. That's who we're addressing. And we're addressing him just simply about our daily cares. And addressing a person is what separates prayer from worrying aloud. And those are very different things. To sit and just sort of name your worries aloud is not the same thing as as discussing them with a person. Also, addressing a person alerts us to our unique relationship and standing with that person. Like, I'm the only one under this um, shelter who would say to Debbie, babes, or Debran, right? I have a certain standing with her that no one else has or can have ever. And that allows for a certain sort of relationship. And so when you name Father, it reminds us of our unique relationship with him. And he's our Father in the heavens. There's an unfortunate translation in virtually all the English Bibles because the word heaven here is actually plural. The Greek is plural. And it's because both the Jewish and Gentile worldview of the Bible was that the heavens was a a plural thing. There was this heaven, the one of our oxygen, right? So think of the oxygen around your cheek and your nose and your mouth. Got it? And then there's the heavens. This is wonderful. We can see out today. So the blue skies and the white clouds, there's the heavens. And then there's the abode of God. And what this prayer says is, our Father in the heavens. So now just think of your Father in the air, around your lips and your nostrils. That's what this is meant to communicate. Not our Father in heaven, way, way out there, beyond the Milky Way, you know, wherever he might be. God far, far away, very distant. That's what so many people get out of this, our Father who's art in heaven out there somewhere, when Jesus would have been picturing the exact opposite. He would have been telling his disciples, when I split and go to the desert, or when I split and go find a solitary place, I am precisely with a person who I am near to. I'm, I'm not, you know, talking with somebody who's far, far away. So probably a good sort of paraphrase of this would be, our Father always near us. Our Father, the one who we read about in Acts 17, this completely, this person of completely competent love who is always willing the good. And so then Jesus says, as a disciple, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name. And of course, that word hallowed, nobody really knows what that means. It's just kind of religious language at this point. But it simply means, may your name be dearly held in utmost respect and love. The Greek term there is actually sanctified. So it means, our Father in heaven, may you be uniquely set aside and respected. May you be treasured and loved in an absolutely matchless way. It's meant to help us to hold God in our mind with the highest possible regard as both the source and the governor of human life in the whole cosmos, as we read in Acts 17, who out of one man created everything, set up the boundaries of how human life would work, and is going to bring it to its completion. I think the imagination this is meant to give us is something like the confidence and wonder of a child at play. So again, because we can sit outside, imagine that this was a park, and there are park benches, and there's a young mom or a young dad um, watching their two or three you know, young children play on the park. And just think of the sort of childlike abandon 
in which within the fences and within the structures of the playground, these child, these children go and play because they know precisely they're being superintended by their father or their mother. And that then abandons them to this childlike quality of being at play in the world. And then Jesus says, pray that God's kingdom would come. And this just simply means, yes, Lord. Yes, please supervise everything. And please direct everything to the good. And please, Lord, let what you prefer be that which which actually happens. And please, Lord, displace the powers of evil and darkness. Again, according to that worldview, that imagination of Acts 17. So it means that in all the activities and all the spaces and places in which we live, we're just simply saying, God, please may your rule and reign come and help us to flow within the rhythms of your kingdom. Now, to pray like that, though, there's a trick here, and this is why we've spent so much time over the years thinking about spiritual formation and the spiritual disciplines. To pray like that, one must have a heart bent to the good and bent towards actually having that worldview and desiring God's will to be done. But, as one Australian monk put it, the most deafening voice in most of our lives is our own. Our desires, fears, anxieties, and obsessive worries, and they just then lead to a treadmill of thoughts that form a constantly chattering mind. And so like we would all, if this was a theological pop quiz, we'd all say, yes, we get it. We want, we want the Lord's will. Yes, we get that we have to become the kind of person who would actually want that, not just as a notional idea, but as a reality in our heart. And as soon as we start trying to go there, these own voices in our head of desires, fears, anxieties, these obsessive worries, they work against it. And it's those malformities in us that I've been suggesting to you for years that we need to address in spiritual formation because they're simply there. And those malformities are, are almost always addressed by some sort of spiritual discipline. So then Jesus says, pray that God's will would be done. Pray that our own being and the world would be shaped around this. And this here we get to our passage in Colossians. So if you think of our own formation for a moment, not just God superintending the whole world, but superintending our own soul, this is why Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Now, when you read a passage like that and other Pauline passages um, and other passages in the Bible, I don't blame somebody for coming to the conclusion that Christian spirituality is just really a long list of moralisms. But nothing could be further from the truth. This is not about abstract ethics or abstract moralisms. It's that those behaviors do not align with the kingdom that we're praying would come to our heart. And, they, and when they're in us, they disallow us, they incapacitate us from doing the good we wish we could do in the world. You just cannot be an agent of good and simultaneously have a soul filled with malice. You cannot be an agent for good when an, a knee-jerk reaction is to slander. It, it incapacitates us from the good we want to do. So far be it from being abstract moralisms, it's a kingdom personal concreteness. So that inwardly, it has to do with our hearts, minds, souls, bodies, emotions, thoughts, will, all that aligning to the kingdom 
and then outwardly being the kind of person who, as God is the agent of good in the world, we then can become an agent of good in the world. So the issue here isn't moralisms. <clears throat> the issue here is really one of alignment. And over the years, you can probably remember me talking about the Greek term hamartia, which is the main New Testament word for sin. It really means to miss the mark. Well, think back to that Acts 17 passage. The mark is humanity is God's project, and humanity mean, and God means something for humanity. That's the mark. That's the, that's the bullseye. And we sin, like if this microphone is the mark, we sin when we live malaligned to that. In fact, that's what the main Hebrew word group for sin means. It means to transgress. It means to choose a different path, to go your own way, to not be on the path towards God and willing the good of others. And so that's to miss the mark. And then metanoia, to think again, to repent, to notice what's real about you, not out of guilt or shame, not out of a sense of religious moralisms, but out of a sense of I deeply desire to be aligned to God's will. I deeply desire to live into that Acts 17 worldview. So that then banishes guilt. It banishes shame, not perfectly, but significantly. Banishes it. We all might deal with it occasionally. But it makes this whole notion of religion or of formation or disciplines or whatever, it makes it into a passion like athletes have or musicians have or you know people who have a passion to be good at something, to play a piece of music, to do a dance accurately, to you know, make some move in some sport. They, they deeply desire it from within them. And it's that desire that we want to cultivate. I, I think just now that uh, in the adult discipleship class, we read James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. And that's, I know I've talked about it a few times in sermons. And Jamie's big contribution over the last five years to Christian spirituality is to remind us that we are not brains on a stick, that we are primarily affective beings. We are primarily that which we love, that which we desire. And this whole thing of realigning your life to God will not happen consistently or at all if it doesn't come from a sincere desire that I am a creation of God and I want to be human as he intended and I want the overflow of that to be for the good of others. That has to be a deeply sincere desire, or this will all just quickly become religion. So then, because this is an issue of alignment, you hear that in Paul's voice when he says, so put on the new self. So instead of things like rage and malice and slander and filthy language, instead of that, put on compassion, put on kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, and over all those virtues, put on love, that is to say, willing the good of the other, which then binds all those other attributes in perfect unity. So again, when Paul says put on, this ought to alert us to spiritual disciplines. And the reason it needs to alert us to spiritual disciplines is because very little of our being and doing lies under the direction of our conscious mind. See, when one's heart or soul is full of malice or slander, you act before you can stop yourself. Because slander or malice or rage is not a part of our conscious self. It's a part of our subconscious self, which is why you have so many human beings saying all the time, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. So then you ask, well, then why did you say it? Well, because it came from this deep subconscious before your conscious mind could stop it. And this is why we have to put off the old old man, put on the new man, 
And I want to say one last time to you, this is the genius of Jesus. And one of the reasons I am such a Jesus freak, it's Jesus who taught that it's only good trees, trees that are innately, essentially good, it's only them who can produce good fruit. A tree that's innately, essentially, fundamentally bad can only produce bad fruit. Or when he said to the Pharisees that day, you're like whitewashed tombs, he was just simply pointing out that there's a religious exterior of you that looks okay, but inside there's still death. Or when Jesus says, you wash the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside untouched. No religious person in history before or after Jesus had this insight. This is the Jesus insight. Nobody else in all of religious history that we know of it, before or after him, has ever said that fundamentally what we're doing is the transformation of our soul. Because it's, it's, it's an invisible world that, well, let me say it this way. In the same way the invisible God animates all the cosmos, there's an inner world in us that animates our externals. And this is what Jesus was always getting at. He always went to the sources, not to the actions. He always went to helping people become the kind of person for whom the deeds and ethic of the kingdom would be intuitive and normal. And then again, I don't know how many times I've read this over the years, but for me, and again, in my imagination, the goal is summed up, the goal of all this is summed up in Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the message, that where this all should be taking us is that you then take your everyday ordinary life, you're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and you place it before God as an offering. Your life as you presently know it. You must not wish your life away. That, well, I'll give it to God when the kids are out of school. Or I'll give it to God, you know, when I'm retired. Or I'll give it to God. You, you, we just must not wish our life away. What we want to do is take our everyday ordinary life and see it as the soil of both our apprenticeship to Jesus and the soil for our mission. It's fine to get on airplanes and fly to mission fields, but our fundamental mission is around us all day, every day. And so lastly, Jesus says, pray that this rule and reign of God's kingdom would happen on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul gets at this uh, in Colossians 3.1 by saying, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So picturing that, Ask that that reality would come to heaven. Like set your minds on those things above and then ask that it would come as a reality on earth. And this is why rest, reflect, and redirect and thoughtfulness and quiet and beauty has been our guiding ideas because they're simply aids to help us do that. They're simply aids to help us see what's real, just notice it, come to grips with it, and then act as if we believe it's true. So then the core element required for followership of Jesus, I've tried to say many, many times, is not strenuous, legalistic, religious effort. The core aspect of following Jesus is genuine belief in the goodness, greatness, and intelligence of Jesus. I don't know how many times I said, you wouldn't learn to play violin from somebody who doesn't know how to play violin, and you will never learn to rid yourself of anger, malice, slander, unkindness, unless you think Jesus knows how to help you do that. Once you come to the conclusion that he is stunningly brilliant and that he's alive and living the most interesting life possible, 
He's alive and as near to us as the air around our cheeks. Once that becomes real and you invite him to be your master, your rabbi, and for him and for you to become his student, his apprentice, well, then everything changes. This whole world opens up before us. So as you begin to move now into your summer together, as it will be called, I don't know if that's started to be rolled out yet or not because I've been gone the last couple of weeks, but as you move into a summer together, I just want you to be confident that this is the reality. Acts 17 is the reality, that, that God is superintending human history, and I want you to just be confident that you're being held and carried along in this process by church leadership, and that lying behind our leadership, as good as it is, as great as it is, is actually the assurance of Psalm 103. We sang it this morning, we heard it read, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. That is what's holding all this. And lastly, I would say, I would want you to never forget that this business of apprenticeship, this business of discipleship, of, of taking Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom serious and walking with him in it, it should always, when it's working right, feel joyful and childlike. It should have this sort of feeling. Jesus said, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me, Jesus said, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Like those children, just playing on the bars, running around in the sand, knowing that mom is watching over me and it's all going to be okay. There's a kind of freedom and a lightness that Jesus commends to us. So for a quiet moment this morning, maybe you can bring yourself to a kind of stillness, bow your head if it would help you. And I wonder, are you feeling held this morning and carried along? Just be real about that, whatever the answer might be. It doesn't matter. It was whatever's real. Are you feeling a bit abandoned? Maybe some of this is pushing kind of abandonment buttons that you maybe knew were there or didn't know were there. So whatever the case may be, what would you like to say to God about whatever it is you currently feel? Being held and carried along might express thankfulness. Feeling a bit abandoned you might want to ask God to refresh you in that worldview that Jesus and Paul commended to us.